This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey everyone, this is Morgan Lee, and you are listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, and we intentionally take some time to explore the reality and the emotion behind a major cultural event. Here right beside me is Caitlin Beatty. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Morgan. How's it going? Good. And what do you do at CT? I'm the print managing editor of Christianity Today. The magazine. Who are we joined with today? <laughs> we have the pleasure of being joined by Tabidi Anyabwile. Hey, Tabidi. Hey, what's good, Caitlin Morgan? How are you guys? We're doing well. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a privilege. Thanks for having me. So, listeners, Tabidi is the pastor at Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. He's the author of several books, including most recently, Reviving the Black Church, New Life for a Sacred Institution. He actually interviewed Tabidi last year about the themes of that book. He is a council member of the Gospel Coalition. He writes regularly at the Front Porch, which is a blog centered on conversations about faithfulness in the African-American church tradition. He is married to Christy, and they have three children. So there you go. Oh, man, it's a blessed life. <laughs> did you <laughs> not good. used to live in the Caribbean? I did. I lived in the Cayman Islands for eight years where I pastored. You were suffering for the Lord in the Cayman Islands. I, I knew that was coming. If I had a dollar for every right, dollar, right, I'm sure. I, I could retire in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> it's okay. They're in D.C. now where they have no public transit system. So <laughs> the Lord brings judgment. Hey, now, I, I like the D.C. metro. It's clean. It's efficient. You know, it's good stuff, man. <laughs> All right, guys. So today we're going to talk about another difficult topic, which is great because that means we have fodder for the show. Yay. Most controversies come with complexity and tension and also outrage and each week we try to acknowledge all of these different things and then work them best out together about how Christians should respond. So this week we get to talk about politics, which is exciting, I think. Earlier this month John Kasich and Ted Cruz suspended their campaigns. Um and we've heard from some leading Republican and conservative voices in the movement they're calling for a third party to run because they are unhappy with both the options of Democratic, presumably, nominee, which is Hillary Clinton, and the Republican nominee at this point, Donald Trump. So earlier this week, Eric Erickson, who founded the conservative blog Red State, was basically saying that Donald Trump cannot consolidate the Republican base um, and that he wanted to be lay, begin now laying the groundwork for an exit strategy from Donald Trump's Republican Party. And then we've seen Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska write an open letter as our boss, Richard Clark, said, to America. An open letter to America. If you haven't read it, it's to you. And basically, in capital letters, it says, why is that the only choice? And also, former um, Republican uh, And just so I understand Sass's open letter to America, why is that? That meaning Donald Trump or, or a third party candidate? I think it is the idea of Trump. Okay, got it. Good point. I'm glad that you clarified there. And then he begins to dream of who this candidate could be without naming a name. And he also says he's not going to run, for what it's worth. <laughs> That's convenient. We've also heard from Jeb Bush and Lindsey Graham, who also ran on the Republican nominees, and they are both said they are not going to support Trump under mm. any circumstances. 
There's a lot going on here. We really want to talk about this third party option today, Mm -hmm. though. And so it's going to be time for our gut check. So before we launch into the bigger discussion, I wonder if everyone can give me their initial response to this idea of the third party in light of Donald Trump. So again, we recognize that some Christians are going to vote for Trump and some Christians are going to vote for Clinton. And some Christians, the ones we're going to talk about today are like weighing this option of the third party. Tabidi, can you tell us how you initially reacted to this in about 140 characters or so? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my reaction would be, at this point, a third-party option is escapism. There is no viable third-party candidate. And that if we're going to enter into, into this as people of conscience, we actually have to make a difficult decision um, between what I think are the two viable candidates, neither of which uh, are acceptable on a whole Host of things. That's what it means to be engaged with your conscience at this point. Caitlin? Yeah, I, I echo Tabidi's gut check. I, I guess I'm surprised that so many Christians are talking about a third party candidate who doesn't exist. It's like we're we're wishing for someone to emerge from the ashes to take us to, you know, a a holier or more just kind of political leadership and that person hasn't emerged, and, and so I'm surprised that we're we're banking on the hypothetical person to emerge. My reaction is disappointment, but disappointment because there's going to be no brokered GOP convention, and I was the political nerd in me was really hoping <laughs> to see something unprecedented huh, yeah. in my lifetime. Yeah, I think that's where I was too. I was I was quietly hoping for that, both for the theater. And and for the, the sort of fledgling promise <laughs> or hope of something different from the GOP side. I was like, I had read this article that someone had written, I think, for the Washington Post that was like, maybe Nikki Haley is going to be the GOP nominee. <laughs> anyway. Okay, guys, let's dive into the big discussion here. So in response to Trump's likely Republican win, you know, like we've alluded to before, there are there are multiple Christians out there who are advocating for a third party option to be you yourself has explicitly critiqued this option. Why is that? Well, I think maybe the place to begin is to say there's a lot of rhetoric that's used in likening Trump to Hitler and Clinton to Stalin and uh, the old sort of refrain of um, the, the, the lesser of two evils. Now, if we're just being, you know, hyperbolic, then okay, we can talk about a third party as a reasonable kind of option. But if, if we're in any way being serious about the, the, the prospective futures that either of these candidates represent, then at the least, I think we have to have a strategy that kind of hinders the progress of, of bad policy and bad decisions as best as possible, knowing that you can't defeat them both. In the absence of a third party candidate, I, I think we just again. I just think that's escapism. I think I think that's kind of a fantasy, and so I think Ben. I think uh, Mr. Sass's uh, open letter to America ought to be returned to sender. <laughs> a very simple note: Are you running? <laughs> you know, are, what, what, what is that? So until we have someone to rally around that that represents a better choice than either the other two presumptive nominees, then I think we're we're or at least I feel sort of conscience bound, duty bound to sort of wade into the midst of the, quote, evil and and try and cast a vote for something that looks like restraint on one of two bad courses. Yeah, you, you wrote this week, I prefer the predictable over the unpredictable, meaning both we could we could frame both leading candidates as committing evil or having evil within their policies or proposals. And yet 
Clinton seems to be at least predictably bad. Whereas we don't know what Donald Trump would do if he were given the the reins and the the power of the office, and that that's a arguably a much scarier future to envision than a, a sort of predictable evil. Hey man, it is for me. I don't know what he's going to do this afternoon, uh, much less when he's when he's president. And and when you when when I sort of view the the kind of sentiment that he's trading in, whether it's um, sort of nativist tendencies, whether it's misogynistic kinds of comments, whether it's, you know, the sort of hawking of war crimes. That, that's, you know, beloved, we, we have never seen a candidate the likes of Trump. We don't know what the future holds for him. And I think I think the GOP is only the first of several things he'll burn down, including the country and eventually our homes, uh, if, we, if we don't oppose it. So one thing I hear when I think of the word predictable is you can negotiate and work with someone within an existing system. So if Hillary Clinton does get elected, there is this assumption that she's going to abide within more or less the same constraints that most presidents try to abide by and that the normal checks and balances and the way that the different party branches interact with her will still be able to interact and cooperate with her um, or not or thwart her in in typical ways. And Mm -hmm. so like to me, there's this sense of, you know, the GOP will likely be able to hang on to Congress and then they will be able to to go about operating in a way that makes sense as our government was designed to be. And that's something that I've thought about. To what extent do we know that Trump is going to try to actually play and interact with the existing system that we have? I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, so we, we know what status quo is. We don't like it. We don't support it. There's much we want to change about it, but we know what it is. We, we do not know what revolutions produce. And uh, I, I think that's what Trump is touting, at least in his in his spirit and his fervor and his rhetoric. And we, we don't know what that becomes. And and history teaches us that there are very few uh, revolutions that actually end up in progress. You, you normally lose a great deal. And so I, I think it's right. We know how to play a political game with a, a very conventional politician like Hillary Clinton, though we may not be supporting of her. We don't know how and, and nothing thus far has worked with with a, with the candidate Trump. Uh, and the prospect of, of of President Trump, who I think causes significant problems sort of down the GOP ticket in state and local elections, which which means the erosion of, of any ability to sort of add restraints to him, and, and who I think would be completely untrustworthy in the appointment of a Supreme Court justice should, should the next president get that opportunity. I just don't think that's a harbinger of good things to come. I think that's a, a disastrous result for the party in the country. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. So 
So one thing that I just wanted to do as a politics major in college and someone who really <laughs> appreciates all this is just kind of nerd out for a little bit and talk about how in many ways this problem that we have is a very uniquely American problem that is a result of how our democracy is actually structured and the fact that we have a two-party system. I don't know how many of our listeners pay attention to politics in Europe or in Israel, um, for instance, but a lot of the countries over there have multiple parties, not just two that they have to pick from. And so they can actually pick from parties and expect their those parties to get representation in their equivalent of Congress or Parliament, to be more specific. And they don't have to just have one option that they're going to go for if they align with a particular political party. And so my question for you guys is, do you see any problem with people who are saying like, yes, let's go third party, given that we're not a country that has third parties historically? And if there's any kind of repercussions from kind of saying like, this process was bad, you know, because Donald Trump was democratically elected in all these different primaries so far. No, I, I don't see any harm in a third party strategy. Um, despite our sort of uh, our sort of polity and, and history of it, you know, we have from time to times had what appeared at least initially to be viable third party candidacies, or at least candidacies that, that affected the race between the two um, nominees from the two parties. So you think back to a Perot, you think back to other third party efforts. And I think if there's a viable one, it, it seems to me that the country is, uh, much of the country, the electric, at least on the Democrat, on the Republican side, is, is primed to sort of pursue it. The question is if there's anybody out there of stature and with enough political heels to actually make a real run. Yeah, I I was struck by a recent study that we reported on from World Magazine. It was a survey of self-identified evangelical insiders. I'm not sure what that means. But in the survey, they said that if faced with a Clinton-Trump ballot in November, 51% would vote for a third-party candidate, even if that candidate had no chance to win, which, which they wouldn't. So to me, this is like voting your conscience taken to an extreme and it's a, I think it's a difference between you know, this classic idealism versus pragmatism. I think third party candidates often do appeal to people with very strong ideals who are very frustrated with the two party system we have. The question is, as Christians, do we vote our ideals um, or do we, we vote within the constraints and what will work given the constraints that we have rather than trying to find a, you know, kind of an ideal candidate? It sounds like what you're saying to BD is the latter. Like we, we have to work within the constraints. And given that Clinton, though unfavorable, is predictable, that's, that's the wiser, more conscionable choice for, for Christians. Yeah, that's where I land, especially if you take seriously the rhetoric about the, the damage and the downside of both of the candidates. If you don't see it that way, you're obviously going to vote for one of the other the candidates. Now, what's interesting for me is for the last several elections, I've been that principled guy saying, ah, I, you know, I just can't vote for anybody. Right. But I just feel like this particular election has brought me to a place where I'm staring my principles in the face and I have a different kind of conflict of conscience. Just sort of saying, no, I can't. I can't opt for a kind of personal quietism here where I kind of palliate my own conscience and, and my own conscience is, qui is quiet. I actually have to inform my conscience here because I'm looking at two options that appear to me to be destructible. And so what's the responsibility in that context? Uh, and in that context, I think opting for a write-in or a third-party candidate to, to sort of soothe my own conscience 
it may in fact be dulling my conscience. I, we have a moral responsibility in the face of evil. If we, if we take that seriously, we have a moral responsibility, I think, to at least act in a way that restrains. And so that's where this guy, who, as I said, for the last 10 or 12 years has, has sort of taken the principled route. That's, that's where this guy says, I just don't think that's a viable route right now. I wanted to just pick up on one thing that you said right there, which is the need to inform your conscience. Can you tell me what that meant? Yeah, I've often been asked the question, what about your conscience? Does this cause any conflict of conscience? My short answer is yes. Anytime we're in a situation where we're, we're looking at choice between two bad options, by definition, you ought to have a conflict of conscience or something's going wrong in the conscience. But then I want to say, but then I want to say, the conscience isn't the final arbiter of Christian witness and action. The Word of God is. When we come to the Word of God, it actually teaches us about our conscience, and it teaches us things like our conscience can be weak, it can be bowed, it could be cauterized or seared. And so uh, we we want to live with a clear conscience before God and before men, but in order to do that, we have to inform our conscience. We have to teach it and instruct it by the Word of God. And so some people have a conscience that's too sensitive. Some have a conscience that's dull. Some have a sense of right and wrong, which is contrary to the scripture. We have to inform the conscience before we can act on it in a reliable way. And so I think there's folks who are feeling the conflict of conscience out there. Boy, get into your word, man. Get into the scripture. Test the things you're thinking by the scripture. and Do your best to have your, your conscience informed by a higher court than the conscience itself. Yeah, that's a really good word. It seems like with this particular election, a lot of Christians are understandably disturbed in their consciences by the fact that Hillary Clinton has had a very consistent pro-choice policy and are turning to Trump to kind of alleviate that issue of conscience. And yet, when you actually look at what Donald Trump has said and done in regards to the moral problem of abortion, he's actually not better. And so there's no there's no hiding in the Republican candidate because, oh, we know that Republicans tend to be more consistently pro-life, he, he is totally equivocated on this issue. So there's no just turning to the Republican candidate to ease our consciences, especially on this issue of abortion. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, it exposes what might have been a, a lazy tendency to just sort of default to the GOP because on paper, they're the sort of pro-life sort of pro-life arena. But in truth, we, we haven't had, in my memory, in recent elections, we haven't had anyone that's run strongly pro-life, said, I'm going to make this a major part of my campaign in the way that many single-issue voters feel about it. And so this election is exposing, I think, the weakness of a conservative evangelical Christian easy default. We're going to have to think our way through elections from this point on. Yeah, it's really good. So it's pretty rare, right, that people find candidates who represent all of their interests. And in fact, minorities have often had candidates representing the parties that they vote for who have little love or interest in serving their needs. So I'm just wondering, to what extent are those that are calling for a third party candidate kind of showing their privilege um, and expecting to have a candidate that really does agree with them? That's a wonderful question. It, it does it does expose a certain kind of privilege, doesn't it? Because uh, if if I think about this from an African-American perspective, uh, African-American voters, since the time we've been able to vote, have had to think through who to vote for among people who have not been sort of champions of the community. Um, and when they have been champions of the community, have largely only been so rhetorically and not really practically. 
And so, you know, this this the, the sort of set the, the default to I'm going to write someone in and choose a third party. I think it does reveal a certain level of privilege that ought to be stewarded well and used well and not resented. But it does have to also be recognized for the privilege that it is if we're going to escape the, the lazy use of it. I also wonder if this particular election calls forth from kind of the, the privileged voting with other people in mind. You know, it's not just how does this candidate appeal to my individual conscience, but what negative effects could this candidate have for other people? I may not be super personally affected by this person's policies, but what kind of effects will it have for the most vulnerable members of our society? Especially given the number of people that Trump has lashed out against. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know that Trump will be good to a lot of different vulnerable groups in our in our society. No, I, th- I think that's right. And and what that what that begs is a broader definition of, of most vulnerable, doesn't it? Uh, I, I think many folks are going to go instantly to the unborn as they should. But many folks will go exclusively to the unborn. And that's what's driving many folks to kind of acquiesce to some right in or third party option. But if you if you start to think about a bigger notion of who should I be voting to protect or to serve? And that's a broader notion of the unborn, includes the unborn, but includes more. And then I think that opens up other options as well. Well, I'm so glad that you guys all chimed in on this very contentious topic. And for all of you guys that have had a lively conversation with Tabidi on Twitter about this, <laughs> feel free to bring some of that energy to the CT podcast, Twitter handle, <laughs> and Facebook. Please do. <laughs> we welcome the conversation here, and Tabidi will might... take some of the heat away from Tabidi. <laughs> Directed at us, everybody. Literally, it's it's cool. We That's what we're here for. We welcome having these we conversations. So we will share our personal social media handles in a little bit, but um, the podcast, you can find us on twitter.com slash CT podcast and on facebook.com slash gt podcast we are now going to have our precious moments time precious moments tbidi if you are able to share something that is encouraging you or making you happy this week that would be awesome oh man you know what i'm really happy my oldest girl's graduating from high school in just a few weeks and and headed off to college after the summer it's a it's a new chapter for us, and, and she is blossoming into just a, a wonderful, thoughtful young woman. Um, she's going to major in English and thinks she wants to write or, or maybe edit uh, someday. And so I, that just tickles me pink. And um, so right now we're just, we're just reveling in God's grace to us and our children and our oldest girls' graduation in particular. Where can we find you online, if you dare? Yeah, well, my Twitter handle is Thabiti Anyabwili, without the E at the end. I don't know why that's the case, but T-H-A-B-I-T-I-A-N-Y-A-B-W-I-L. So you can hang out there at Twitter, or you can visit me at thefrontporch.org or over at the Gospel Coalition where I blog at Pure Church. We'd love to engage and hear from people. Caitlin, what's making you happy this week? Yeah, I am looking forward to representing Christianity today at the upcoming Justice Conference, which is the first weekend in June. We will have a booth there. So any of you listeners who will be in attendance, it's in Chicago. It's been there for the past few years. Please stop by and say hello, and you will get a copy of the new issue of CT Magazine, which will feature a lengthy portrait of family members of victims of the shooting at Charleston in Charleston 
at Emmanuel AME um, last year. That will be our cover story for the June issue. So I'm excited to connect with you and to share that story. And if you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. One thing that has been such a joy to me this week, I finished reading Silence and Beauty by Mako Fujimura, who is a Japanese-American painter and author. And I'm now thoroughly interested in Japanese culture and I've had multiple conversations <laughs> with people about the themes that are raised in this book. The really awesome thing about this book is that a lot of different theology books um, or kind of Christian spirituality, Christian life books, I feel like I have a tendency to try to figure out what type of American Christian binary they fit into and what type of conclusions they're trying to draw based on that binary. But because of the cultural influence of this book, I feel like it escapes that for the most part and it would made it a lot easier for me to learn um, a lot of the really challenging truths that are in it and I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L anyway thank you to all of our listeners for chiming in to well not chiming in I guess chime in on our <laughs> social media sites but for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen this show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred Special thanks to Kate Shelnut. You can find our show on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher and Overcast. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and boost us up on the charts. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.